We're going to look at uh, the fifth chapter of Ecclesiastes, so if you want to turn back to that, it's on page 590 of the Church Bibles, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 5. As you're uh, finding that, I wonder whether you're the type of person that likes to uh, play sport or games. Uh, I know I uh, like a bit of badminton now and again. It's important when you do play a sport that you know the rules, uh, because it all goes horribly wrong if you don't know the rules or people are playing by different rules. I remember when I was uh, in Greece working with refugees, and they used to like playing drafts, and their English wasn't that great, and we'd start playing drafts, and they'd do all these moves that I'm sure weren't right, but obviously I didn't want to offend them. I thought there must be some separate rules uh, back in uh, Afghanistan uh, where they were from. And uh, so I pretty much lost every game. And then I was chatting to one of my friends who was from Afghanistan, but his English was good. And he said, no, they're not different rules, they're just cheating. So, <laughs> um, so it's important that we know, uh, know what the rules are uh, when we do come to games. And I don't know whether you've ever thought of life, and I'm not saying that life is a game, but certainly life is created, and it was created by God himself. And there are rules. There are rules about reaping and sowing. There are rules about how we should live. Uh, there are things that please God, and there are things that, things that displease God. And I think people have kind of forgotten that, really, that uh, this world, you know, as we've gone away from the idea that the world was created, we've also gone away from the idea that there are rules and that there will be a day of judgment. And um, this chapter, really, when you look at it, is about how we approach God. What is it? that the Lord requires of us? How do we live our lives in a way that pleases him? Uh, how do we um, live a, the life that we were created to live? And you'll see this first section, verses 1 to 7, is very much about how we approach God in times of worship. And yes, it's talking about times like this where we meet together, uh, but it's also, I think, uh, wider than that in terms of how we approach God. And it's an incredible thing that we can actually approach God you know, God is not kind of distant uh, and unknowable and unapproachable, but he has actually made himself known in the person, the work of the Lord Jesus. And that's an incredible thing for God to do that and to want to be known by us. But it also brings a responsibility in thinking about how we do that, how we seek the Lord, how we approach the Lord. And you see, the first thing that uh, we're called to do in verse one is to walk prudently. In other words, it's important that we do it reverently that we don't just do it glibly, that we just don't do it without thinking, but that we actually uh, do it reverently and prudently. See, worship is primarily about acknowledging the worth of God. That's what worship is. And I think for some people, worship has become this time where they, they think they can sort of go almost to like a genie who will just uh, give them all that they want or make them feel good about themselves. And yes, when we worship the Lord, we kind of do realign ourselves and Yes, we do feel that joy and that peace. And yes, when we pray to the Lord, then he does answer our prayers and we do get the things we need. As we heard earlier on, he knows our needs before we even ask. But the primary thing with worship is to acknowledge the worth of God. It's about him, not about us. And equally, God is the one who decides how he wants to be worshipped, not us. And I think it's important that we think about that in terms of how does God want to be worshipped? How does God want to approach us? You'll see in verse 1 it says, draw near to here. And that should be our main aim. Our main aim is not to go there and just uh, spurt out a load of things that we want and, uh, uh, and tell the Lord how we're feeling. And again, we can do that. He calls us to present our requests to him. He calls us to be honest. 
But actually, the, the main thing that we do is we draw near to hear, to listen to God's word in order that we might know him and serve him. So that focus is not on just making ourselves feel good or getting what we want. James 1 verses 19 to 20 says, Let every man be swift to hear, but slow to speak. And thirdly, we must have a right perspective. Notice in verse 2, Solomon says, For God is in heaven and you are on earth. You know, there's a big difference between us and God and the fact that we can approach him is a wonderful thing, but we should never forget that there is that difference there. We don't come on equal terms uh, in that sense. So we must have a correct understanding of who God is. He's a person with a character, with desire, with likes and dislikes. He's not just some kind of force uh, that's out there. He is a person with a character. And he's in a eternal relationship. There's this wonderful relationship that we've already talked about between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that true I'm God, who uh, are in relationship with one another. And that's just such a comforting and a wonderful thing to know that at the centre of the universe is relationship. And we are called into that relationship. God has all authority and power. He is creator and judge. And as I said, he's the one that sets the rules. He is defined by no one. And his character and behaviour defines all that is good. You know, we don't go with our uh, understanding of certain words and certain ideas and, and try and fit God into that box. It's God who defines what is good. He is not defined by us. If we talk about love, it is God that defines what love is, not love that defines our understanding of God. We must also have a correct understanding of who we are and our standing before God because we're not God. We're created beings We're limited beings, but we have an eternal soul. We were created to love God and to serve him. God is not just something that's kind of on the side that we might get to later in life or if we're desperate, uh, somebody to call upon. God is the center of all things and our, our existence is to serve him and to love him. There is no true life outside of him. But we're sinful by nature and our behavior and so we're in need of a savior Our attitude must therefore be one of humility and gratitude and submission. God is not an idol who will be what we want him to be or a genie who must do what we wish. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And when we come to God, we should be honest and sincere. Verse 2 says, Let your words be few. You see, fools babble. Their speech is full of big words, of jargon, insincere promises, vain repetition. You've only got to turn the TV on just to see that it's all fizz. You know, it's almost like you're putting it when I was Alka-Seltzer's and it all fizzes, but there's nothing in it. A lot of it is just insincere promises and vain stuff that people are saying. And people's actions are full of public gestures. I think we call it virtue, virtue, virtue signaling these days. It's just stuff done for show. Think of that um, passage in Matthew. Nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. People doing things just as public gestures with no real meaning behind it. Meaningless rituals just done for the sake of it. Proverbs 17:28 says, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. Matthew 12, 36 to 37. But I say to you that for every idle word 
men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You see, without God as the author and the object of our worship, our words and our actions will be the sacrifice of fools. Firstly, they'll be without understanding. Matthew 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Secondly, it will be without sincerity. Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Thirdly, there'll be a mere show to impress others. Matthew 6, verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Fourthly, it'll be done just to gain glory for ourselves and not for God. Matthew 6, verse 2. When you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. And finally, it will be done on our terms, not his. Mark 7, 6 to 7, uh, sorry, Mark 7, 6 to 7 and verse 9. This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. So we must be on the guard against uh, this, what uh, the, the writer calls the sacrifice of fools, that look very impressive, but actually there's no sincerity, there's no meaning in there. They're just done from us trying to get things from God rather than true worship. We must also be careful to keep any promises we make, and you'll see this in verse 4. You see, God keeps his promises to us, and he expects us to do the same, both promises made to him, but also promises made to each other. If you're not intending to follow through on something, then don't promise to do it. And we should live the life that God has given us, not in some kind of dream world of our own imagination. And you'll see this in verse 7, where he talks about people living in sort of a fantasy land. And again, how often we see it, uh, especially in the younger generation, this idea that they don't want to face reality of their lives and the mundaneness of life and the limitations of their own life. They just want to lose themselves in fantasy worlds of films or computer games or virtual reality. But we should be those who make the most of the reality of our circumstances to serve God. We need to be realistic in what goals we set or the promises we make and do what's necessary to achieve them. We mustn't live in a dream world, fantasising about futures that we have no intention of working towards and flitting from one unrealistic dream to another, never following through on anything we say. Again, this is nothing new under the sun. Proverbs 28, 19 says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity, fantasies, will have poverty enough. In verses seven, uh, 8 to 9, the preacher moves on to look at uh, an issue that we came across in the last chapter, was this issue of the misuse of power and of corruption. And he says, don't be surprised when you see corruption in those in authority. Authority is God-given and should be used to serve others and ensure a just society. Romans 13.1 says, let every soul be subject 
to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So a just society should value all individuals and the work that they do, distributing wealth fairly and ensuring justice for all. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honours him has mercy on the needy. Leviticus 23.22, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field when you reap, nor shall you gather any gleaning from your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord, your God. However, as we saw in the last chapter, and again in this one, power corrupts. So in verse 8, Solomon tells us not to be surprised when those in power oppress those they rule over, sometimes violently. Don't be surprised when they collude with each other in this corruption. Don't be surprised when they favour their friends and others in authority. Don't be surprised when they benefit unfairly from the labour of the working person. Now, it's true that we'll never completely stop injustice, but as servants of a just God, we should be working towards it. We should be acting rightly towards others, being generous with what we have and seeking justice for them. Deuteronomy 15, 11 says, The poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and the needy in your land. No, CC doesn't say, well, the poor will always be with you, so don't bother with them because there's nothing you can do. Notice it says you'll always have the poor with you, so there'll always be opportunity to be generous, and it's important that we do. Ephesians 4, 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labour, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So even again, when you see that, for people that have made their uh, living and, and done stuff Um, against the law. It's not just the fact that now we want them to sort of reform so that they can provide for themselves, but it's so they can provide for the needy too. Isaiah 1 verse 17, seek injustice, sorry, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. We should also pray for those in power that they may rule wisely. Paul encourages Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. Therefore I exhort you first of all that supplications, prayers, intercession and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. You see, one day God will bring justice for all. One day God will punish the unjust oppressors. But this period we live in, there will always be an abuse of power. But it's important that we do all that we can to seek justice, to be generous. But that day is coming where the Lord will bring justice. Nobody will get away with anything. Those things that frustrate us and annoy us, that we think we can do nothing about on a a national or a global scale, one day those people will be held to account. Isaiah 10, verse 1 to 3. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people. That widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment, and in the desolation which comes from afar? To whom will you flee for help? We should also seek the value uh, to, sorry, we should also seek to value 
uh, and seek the good of all workers in society. You know, we shouldn't be those that are just kind of sitting in our library towers or think, well, you know, we're okay and uh, not worried about other people. You know, I think in, in COVID, it's one of those things where it really highlighted that often the jobs that are the most valuable in societies are not necessarily the ones that we value. And how uh, valuable were things like uh, shop workers and carers and, uh, and people like that, uh, even, you know, the guys that uh, uh, empty the bins, how important were they in COVID? Yeah, isn't it weird that we kind of lord all these uh, celebrities and entertainers and sports stars earning in, in a week what some people will never earn even in a lifetime? It's a strange society we live in sometimes where those people that we're depending on, those people who are providing food for us, who are tilling the land, who are going out uh, fishing or whatever, are just not given the status that people uh, are doing jobs that we could quite easily do without. See, society depends on people of all different abilities and skills doing a variety of jobs. But we don't seem to value them equally. We seem to have this strange hierarchy that seems to value that which is frivolous. We value much, very much uh, entertainers these days. Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 15 says, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it. For he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord and it be sin to you. 1 Timothy 5.18 says, The labourer is worthy of his wages. Look at what uh, Solomon says in verse 9. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. You know, it's an amazingly true statement that, that without people producing food, then everybody will suffer. You know, you can't kind of sit at the top of the pile and think, well, I don't need those people uh, who, who are doing those manual jobs or those people that I'm looking down on. You know, those kind of manual jobs, especially those in production and manufacturing, uh, farming, fishing, construction, engineering are a foundation on which society is built and wealth is created. All other jobs, even the king and others who consider themselves at the top of the pile, are dependent on them and benefit from them. As Solomon says, even the king is served from the field. You know, what a wonderful place for a king to come to, to realise that actually he needs all the people in the land to do their jobs. Verses 10 to 17 uh, Solomon comes back to a theme that uh, we've seen already uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is this idea that wealth is not the answer to everything. But although so many people are seeking after possessions or higher wages or more and more and more, that actually wealth op- often has the opposite effect, that it often brings dissatisfaction and anxiety. That it, do- it isn't the thing, the idol, that we may think that we can go to for security and for peace. Verse 10 is very clear that, and we saw this in the last chapter, that our human nature makes us dissatisfied. That even if we set goals and reach those goals, we'll just be dissatisfied, we'll want more and more. You know, how often have you said, well, if I only get this, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be happy, then I'll feel secure. If I've only got this much in the bank, then I'll feel that my uh, retirement is secure. But actually, we want more and more. Because at the end of the day, we're greedy. 
And sometimes we're even willing to oppress others to gain it for ourselves. And this is what you see in those in authority who are unjust, is they basically, they want more and more, more power, more wealth, and they're willing to stand on everybody else in order to get it. Verse 11 makes it clear that also when we make more money, there'll always be plenty of people who want to benefit from it. So actually, you know, all these millionaires, uh, how many stories have you heard where they just then swamped with uh, so-called friends who just want a bit of the money that they have uh, made and all of a sudden they're, they're giving it away and they've got nothing left or they don't know who their real friends are because people are just there for money? At least if you have no money, then you know who your real friends are. You know, often you find out who our friends are in times of adversity, not in times of plenty. In verse 12, you'll see that uh, wealth can also bring sleepless nights. Solomon says that a life of hard, honest work can lead to a contentment that will help us to sleep, that we can lie peacefully at night knowing that we've done a good job. But the wealthy, although the wealth can be a blessing, it can also bring so many worries that it keeps them uh, awake at night. And the main worry maybe is losing all of our wealth. You know, how much we, we con ourselves to thinking, well, we'll just store this up or we'll just store that up for the future. But how easily is it lost? Matthew six nineteen to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. <clears throat> for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The other thing that wealth cannot do is keep us from the adversities of life. Look at verses 14 and 17. You know, wealth cannot keep us from physical and mental illness. No matter how much money you've got in the bank, it can't stop you from getting cancer. It can't stop you from developing a mental illness. Yes, you may have more money to try and uh, spend on treatments and, and those kind of things, but no amount of money can stop you from suffering. Our body decays. It can't stop misfortune either. You know, rich people have car crashes the same as the poor. It can't stop from accidents or market crashes. It can't stop theft. It can't stop relationship breakdowns. You know, wealth is a terrible idol. It's a terrible thing to serve because it has no power in itself. Verses 15 and 16, the greatest thing wealth cannot do is make us live forever. And again, how often do you see how much of uh, the adverts and the things that you see on TV are about trying to live forever, trying that eternal youth, you know, the latest cream that will stop your skin from ageing or the latest fad that will uh, make you live longer, but you cannot add even an hour to your life. You know, wealth cannot stop us from dying. We can't take it with us when we die. Its power is limited. So what's the remedy to all of these things? What's the remedy to, to all of these uh, uh, difficult things that we've been looking at? What's the remedy to uh, not putting our trust in wealth? And it's contentment. And you'll see this in verse 18 to 20. And again, it's a theme that we've seen before in the book of Ecclesiastes and kind of runs all the way through. It's this repeated advice to enjoy the work we do. Doesn't mean we can't look for another job or look to, uh, to improve our career. But the starting point for anything is to be content with what we have. 
to enjoy the work that we do, to enjoy those small things of life, the relationships that God has given us. Make the most of them. Accept them as gifts from a loving God. You know how terrible it is when we uh, looked at the the guy with the the folded hands who was just kind of uh, really resentful and bitter at the lot that he'd been given and just didn't want to move on, didn't want to be happy with his lot, but was just kind of uh, bitter at all that had happened to him, felt that he was somehow deserved more or, or was missing out on something. But how wonderful to be thankful for what we've been given and make the most of it. How wonderful to be able to serve God and other people and to honour God with the life that he's given us. Because we can all honour God with the life we've given us. We don't have to have something else or be something different in order to honour the Lord. You know, yes, we might want to, um, you know, learn something new or do something new in order to benefit other people, but we can benefit people as we are now. You know, God has given us as a gift to each other in order to benefit each other. So there shouldn't be anybody here that just thinks, well, what can I do? How can I honour the Lord or serve other people? All of us have a job to do. You see, what we need to do is trust the Lord as he leads us through life into eternity. You know, as we mentioned this morning, the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. We have to uh, trust that he will lead us through the life that he's given us. He will guide us through this life and all the way he's bringing good out of the life that we have. You know, the Bible says that we can store up treasure in heaven by the way that we uh, live our lives, not trying to store up those material things on this earth that we'll, could, we could lose at any moment or that will go when we die, but actually through the good things we do, the way that we bless other people, the way that we bless the Lord and live for his glory, we're storing up treasure in heaven when nothing can, no one can steal it and nothing can make it rot or tarnish it, for it will be there for all eternity. Now, earthly riches and power are not inherently evil, They are a gift from God, and you'll see uh, that in this passage, that he says, you know, when somebody has wealth, when somebody uh, has a job that they enjoy and that they're good at, that is a gift from God. But we must use them for God's glory and the good of others. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. 1 John 3, 17. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You'll see in uh, in verse 20, there's this wonderful, uh, 19 and 20, this wonderful idea that God can so help us to enjoy the simple things, the work uh, and the wealth that he's given us, that actually we will be so rejoicing in that labour that we won't even have time to dwell on the things of this life. We won't even have time to get kind of anxious or bitter about things. Verse 19 and 20, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labour, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. You know, what a wonderful picture that is. I wish that had been, I could say that was true for me over my life. It hasn't. You know, a lot of my life I've kind of lived a little bit resentful, wishing I was someone else or wishing I had more. 
But what a wonderful picture this is to be so thankful for who God has made us and what God has given us, that there's a joy in our heart that just overcomes all those difficulties of life. And may God fill our hearts with so much gratitude and joy in the life that he's given us and the work that we do, that we won't even have time to be dissatisfied, anxious or envious. What a wonderful gift that is from the Lord. So what can we say in conclusion to these things? Well, I think we need to be on our guard against false religion. We need to be uh, on guard against that sacrifice of fools that we looked at in the first part of this chapter. We need to be very careful how we approach God, how we live for God, how we worship God. We also need to be on guard against injustices. We need to make sure that we are acting rightly, we're being generous towards people, and if we see injustice around us, we don't just turn a blind eye. Because God is a just God. God wants us to stand up for the needy, for the oppressed, for the marginalised. And also we have to be on guard against this greedy discontent that is at our very nature, this idea that we just want more and more and more. But then when we get it, we'll just be dissatisfied. You see, we can so easily take the good gifts that God has given to us and that God has given to society and turn them into self-seeking and self-righteous idols. We can so easily take the good things that God has given us for the benefit of others and use them for the benefit of ourselves. We can so easily take the good things that God has given us in order for us to worship him and just worship ourselves and live for ourselves. But Paul encourages Timothy, uh, the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 to 12. And this is how we should live our lives. Aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and you may lack nothing. You know, what a wonderful starting place for life is this idea that we walk properly to those around us, we walk properly before God, and that we work so that we will lack nothing and that we have uh, something to share with those in need. I'm not saying that we can't have aspirations and goals for more, but that's the starting place, this contentment, this using what we've been given wisely for the benefit of others and the glory of God. And just finally, as Micah states in chapter 6, verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Amen.